We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the South Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-hosts, as is often the case this week, are Neil Bradley. Hey, everyone. Harrison Keeley. Hi, everyone. And Alan Martin. Hello, everyone. So, in case you haven't noticed, things are getting kind of crazy out there and have been... uh, particularly over the past few weeks. Um, Chaos reigns, it seems, or is beginning to really reign uh, and take hold across the full spectrum of kind of politics, society, and everything in between. Uh, But the point to remember in all of this as this goes down and things get crazier and crazier is that it is understandable. Um, You can make some sense of it uh, but you need to use your brain, not react uh, emotionally as, or even engage in kind of emotional thinking, letting your emotions overtake your, your kind of critical thinking capabilities, because that is exactly what uh, the kind of propaganda or the propagandists, in, particularly in the West, would like everybody uh, in Western countries to do, uh, is to just uh, go with your instinctive fear-based shocked gut reaction uh, that they usually offer to you as well. But it's very important to try and remain calm, even though events of late have been quite horrific and quite scary for a lot of people. And in that sense, that's exactly what we're here for and why we have this radio show is to try and help you to stay calm, cool, and collected uh, in the face of this insanity as things get crazier and crazier. Um, so... With that said, obviously, our topic, if you've read the title of the show, is um, the recent terror attacks in Nice um, and the very recent attempted coup in Ankara. And even more recently, maybe we'll get into it as well because it's just more or less breaking news, there have been several policemen shot in Baton Rouge uh, like an hour ago Mm -hmm. and several more injured. So where would we like to start? Let's go chronologically, maybe. Let's start with Nice. Start with 9-11, then. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start with the creation of America. All right. (laughs) No, we can't go back that far. Nice. Yeah, so France was kind of breathing a bit of a sigh of relief because they'd gotten through a major sports tournament for a month without a fairly well-heralded and threatened terror attack. Right. Um, it was done, and then July 14th, four days after the final of the event, Bastille Day, their national holiday, and then this. So, Harrison, what are you, what, your thoughts on it? Well, first, for anyone that hasn't been following the news, just a really short um, kind of summary of what, of what went down. Um, in Nice, there was a Bastille Day celebration planned with fireworks, 
and several uh, miles or kilometers of the kind of the road that goes right along the coast was um, blocked off with just thousands of of people, um, not just French, but people visiting the country from from other nations to watch the fireworks and celebrate Bastille Day. And so, like I said, this stretch of road was blocked off, kind of. You know, there were um, kind of minor barriers set up at, at either end. And apparently what had happened is that there's this guy, um, Mohamed Lahuaj Boulel, and he was a truck driver. He actually worked for a kind of delivery kind of company. So he had this kind of big delivery truck, and early that morning, he had um, parked the truck at one end of of this road, and police had encountered him. Um, again, this is just what what the, the the news media reports that we're getting from either police or just the media or French officials. And so, police had encountered this guy, and he told them he was delivering ice cream. And um, so they just they left it at that and left him alone. And then at some point. Um, so which I can't remember which day was this on. Was this Thursday? Yeah, well, 14th, this was fourteenth. Fourteenth, yeah. So this was Thursday. Thursday. So on that same day, there are reports from um, after the event happened. Um, you know, media and police did interviews with a, a whole bunch of people in his neighborhood and who knew him. So one of the people that knew him said that he he'd encountered him on Thursday that night um, drinking. Um, like at a bar, and he had gotten an argument with someone, and this guy s- said he was worthless and something like that. And so Boulel responded, oh, well, you know, you're going to know about me someday, or, you know, I'm, I'm going to be something big. And so sometime after this alleged encounter, he got back in the truck, um, broke through the barrier, and just plowed through these crowds of people. Uh, killing 84, I think, is the latest toll, and injuring, what, like hundreds more. And it was it's just horrific. There are some videos um, that people captured on their cell phones online of this happening. He drove for two, was it miles or two kilometers? Um, two kilometers, yeah. Two kilometers along this stretch of road before the truck was stopped. Once it was stopped, there were reports that there was gunfire. Some people were saying that this guy in the truck opened opened fire on civilians and police. Um, but whatever occurred then, what the, the the result of that was that this guy was shot to death by the police, and that you can see video of that too. And so all this happened, and it's been only what like three days so far, and the news reports coming out so far of the investigation and the background to this. There have been interviews with his family. Uh, this guy was born in Tunisia, and uh, but was living in France. Um, I don't know for sure if he was a French citizen or not, um, but he'd been he living was. there. He was. He'd been living there for, what, like 16 years, I think, since around 2000, mm-hmm. and or 2002, something like that. And they so they interviewed his family, his, his, the family of his ex-wife, whom he divorced uh, a few years ago. And first of all, his family says that he had, like since at least 2004, a a history of mental illness. He was on, at least at that point, several like psychoactive medications. He had he was uh, violent. He um, he was kind of not very sociable. Um, The people who lived in the area around him say that he was very quiet, kept to himself, and would get would like stare at people and make them uncomfortable. So he'd stare at women and children and kind of made the people that lived around him uncomfortable. He had a history 
um, of like a, of petty crime. He there was a road rage a road rage incident. Um, he was I think the last time he was arrested was earlier this year, and um, he, he's gotten several fights. And but what all the people who, oh and then the um, his ex wife's cousin or brother um, uh, shared his opinions of this guy to the Daily Mail among other news outlets and said that this guy was a piece of crap. He wasn't a Muslim. He was violent. He beat his ex-wife. He, um, uh, what else did he say about him? He, yeah, he didn't, he ate pork, he drank, he did drugs. He never went to a mosque. Like he explicitly said this guy was not a Muslim. Um, his family says the same thing. And all these people who knew him said that he had no kind of indications of this so-called radicalization. He wasn't tied with either any religious Muslims or any radical Muslim groups. So the latest thing that's come out about, about, come out about this is Fra uh, French Prime Minister Manuel Valls just said um, today, or at least it's in the news today, that this guy, um, he, he was radicalized very fast. It was, it was yeah. a very fast radicalization. Ex express, express radicalization. Which, <laughs> so you look, at, you look at what all, all of the things that people who know him have said about him so far, and then you see this thing that Valls is saying, and it's like, Basically, the translation of what he's saying is that there were no signs that this guy was radicalized, had any ties with any radical groups, but because that's the narrative that has to be filled, they're saying, oh, it was a supreme, an extremely fast radicalization. Basically, like, you know, he got up that morning and decided, oh, um, I'm, I'm, radical. I'm, radi I'm radicalizing it was, myself. It was a new strain of radicalization. Yeah. Particularly viral mutation. <laughs> and fast acting. A new, a, new, a new strain of BS is what it yeah. is. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, so basically, from what we know so far, like I said, there's there's no evidence indicating that this guy was tied in any way to any kind of radical Muslim group. And all all that we can say so far is that this guy seemingly did engage in this horrific act and, and massacred these eighty four people. Mm -hmm. But um, but that's not the line that's being followed, um, and. An interesting thing, um, the state of emergency that was set into place after the last terror attack in France was set to expire on the 26th of this month. And just prior to, I think it was a day or two prior to the Nice attacks, um, Hollande was on TV talking about how it's time to get rid of this state of emer emergency. We can't be a true republic as long as we have this state of emergency going. So, I mean, we're going to get rid of it, and it's a great thing that we're getting rid of it. Then these attacks happen, and that same day, Olan gets on TV and says, we have to extend our state of emergency for at least three months. So um, you can take your, your two Olans and try to figure out which one of them was being genuine, if either of them, um, with it, you know what he really thinks about the state of emergency. But um, I don't know. Uh, more will come to me. What do you guys think of that so far? Yeah, well, that's the kind of uh, the, base, the basics of it, but... Um Immediately after, just to tell you a little story, on the, on the night of 14th, we're in France, obviously, so the night, on the night of the 14th, which is Bastille Day, um, which is, you know, celebrated French national holiday, rem recalls or remembers the uh, French Revolution, uh, specifically when the French people, French revolutionaries, uh, stormed the Bastille prison in Paris, and uh, I suppose they were going to liberate all the prisoners who had been put there by the evil evil monarchy, um, but there was nobody there, actually, so it was a bit of a damp squib, 
but anyway, it's it's been picked as the as the the defining moment or the the moment to remember in in French history as part of the the French people power basically. Um, so it's a big holiday in France, the national holiday. There's always fireworks. There's fireworks in pretty much every decent sized town, and there were fireworks in our local town here, which is just a few kilometers away. And we were sitting up on our kind of up on our just uh, kind of a, a deck, uh, and we could see some of the fireworks in the distance. Um, and we were thinking to ourselves, "Geez, I was kind of quite chilly that night." Where we were thinking to ourselves, "Geez, it's uh, this isn't this isn't much fun. We may as well have. If we're going to sit here watching this from here. We should have gone up there, you know, and uh, and seen it uh, full on, you know, in in person." Um, but then somebody said, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't cause, uh, something bad might happen, you know, we, you know, and then we were laughing about it and making a joke of it, you know, that we're so paranoid, you know, that, uh, we don't even want to go to fireworks displays in case something generally bad happens, you know, for anything from a terrorist attack to getting hit in the face with a firework or something, you know? So, uh, we were laughing at ourselves at that silliness of our, of our kind of cautiousness, you know? And as we were saying that, this guy was running through um, uh, crowds of people at a fireworks display elsewhere in France. So it was kind of uh, it was quite uh, quite strange. But um, immediately after it happened, when we looked at the details and we saw a few videos, this was in, in the same night, in fact, uh, or, or just early the next morning. And um, the impression we got initially was that this was there wasn't anything like previous terror attacks that happened in France. So there's been mm-hmm. quite a few, uh, specifically earlier this year and um, or late last year in Paris and before that also in Paris, um, where you had these armed guys running around shooting people, going apparently uh, walking through the streets of Paris uh, with impunity reports then afterwards of more people involved, white guys in Mercedes and stuff with guns that were airbrushed out of the narrative afterwards. So this one didn't really fit that kind of profile. It didn't. It seemed pretty much to be what they said it was, uh, based on the evidence. This guy got in a got in a truck and plowed through a bunch of people. And I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure I haven't even looked. I'm pretty sure there's a bunch of uh, there's a bunch of people out there, the kind of actors, theorists, and stuff who are already on this as another fake fakery and and you know actors and stuff like that. So apparently, uh, you know. I'm sure all the people in, in Nice that day were all actors. And this guy was an actor and it didn't happen. It was fake blood, blah, 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 all that nonsense. Um, but um, it seems to be, I mean, you're looking at it, it's pretty It's pretty horrific and it's quite, for for any rational person, it's quite easy to understand how this would happen, you know. Like Harrison, you were describing the, the scene. There's two. There's a two-way road running along the front of the sea in Nice and it's called Promenade des Anglais, the Promenade of the English which might be quite uh, quite symbolic uh, in a certain sense. But um, anyway, um, so it's the main promenade along uh, the front of the sea seashore. So there's a, there's a pedestrian kind of actual promenade, and then there's the two-lane road right beside it, parallel. Uh, one of those lanes had been blocked off, so traffic could only travel in one lane. <clears throat> and once on one side of the road was, was, was free for, had become a pedestrian uh, route effectively along with the actual kind of paved promenade right in front of the wall in front of the sea um, so about 30,000 people uh, were packed along that relatively narrow 
strip of road along the front of the, the sea and the fireworks had actually just begun. So this guy, as you said, Harrison had parked his car there previously, given the excuse of I'm um, delivering ice cream and um, cops. It was a refrigerated truck, so cops were okay, whatever. They didn't didn't check too much into it. And then later, he either I think he went away and came back, or he maybe stayed in the truck. But probably he went away and came back and got in the truck and then started driving along slowly along the um, along this section of the road. Um, and you see a couple of people trying to who had he had either hit someone already before he had actually entered the area where, or got to the large concentration of people. He, uh, but there were several people chasing the truck and one guy on a motorbike who tried to uh, get into the cab, basically. Um, so that a few people had already seen that this was a bad scenario, basically, this truck in an area at night, um, uh, in a pedestrian area, effectively, and, and driving along. So at that point, he sped up and he basically then started to plow into this group of people, this long line of people, like I said, 30,000 people, and supposedly Swerving said decided to hit people. Uh, so it's very easy to see how he would kill a large number of people doing that uh, in the, under those conditions in that, in that scenario. Um, he could have killed many more, in fact, um, because, you know, people are, are hemmed in, you know, there's a, the people are kind of, it's a fairly tight squeeze of people relatively, and uh, and people don't have anywhere to go in that situation, either over the wall into the, which people, some people did jump over the wall into the sea, uh, or you just try and run into other people, basically. So it becomes a real a crush there. And in that situation, you're concentrating the number of people that this guy's running into. So um, the question then is, having satisfied ourselves that this was what it seemed to be, the question is, you know, why? Okay, he's a Muslim, but then information comes out that He's not really a practicing Muslim. He's as Muslim as I am Catholic, mm-hmm. i.e. I haven't seen a priest in 20 years, you know. So um, let alone sp- spoke to one, <laughs> let alone confessed to one. Um, but uh, so this guy isn't really a Muslim. He's just an average type of guy in uh, in that part of, in, in anywhere in France, really. He's uh, at least on the face of it, but. The backstory to him, as you described as well, Harrison, is that he's a kind of a nasty piece of work. I think one of his friends or his cousin basically called him a nasty piece of work. Mm-hmm. He's just a, a really disaffected kind of guy, angry, uh, violent. He's got, you know, character disturbed. He's got some personality problems, basically. And uh, so the next question is then what provokes him to, get, to organize this? Uh, did he get instructions from ISIS? Unlikely. Uh, there's no evidence that he was in any way, as Valls claimed, radicalized. That's why he's saying he must have been radicalized in, you know, yeah. two hours, basically. Because why else would anyone do this? Right. Mm-hmm. But well, why, why? that's the question. Why would he do it? Mm-hmm. So the question is, so that, well, the possible answer to that is, well, I don't know. And we're trying to, kind of, to a certain extent, read his mind at, at this point. But if you put it in the context of French people in France, uh, French Muslims, sorry, in France, and Muslims, obviously, elsewhere around the world, particularly in the Middle East and in other countries in Europe, they've basically been persecuted uh, as part of the U.S.-led war on terror for the past 15 years. They've been demonized. They've been marginalized. And, I mean, that kind of process of 15 years of demonization of an entire kind of, well, it's officially, you know, about 1.5 billion people on this planet, but specifically concentrated in uh, people in the Middle East and, and, their, and, and in North Africa and and their descendants or their or people of the same 
of the same ethnicity and, and religion in, in Europe. <clears throat> uh, they've been demonized as a result of 9-11. You know, Al-Qaeda, Muslims are terrorists. That's when it all began. Muslims are terrorists. The, the phrase Muslim, Muslim terrorism, i.e., you know, it's like saying, I mean, people need to flick that around and say Catholic terrorism, Christian terrorism. If you're a Christian and you hear the term Christian terrorism, I mean, it's going to affect you. You know, you're going to feel the heat of that, basically. And it's been going on for 15 years. Not only has it, was it 9-11, but then this series of so-called terror attacks that happened since then. You had Madrid bombings. You had the London bombings. You had uh, all sorts of, obviously, uh, bombings in different places, particularly in the Middle East, in Israel, etc. This incessant, consistent, persistent a propaganda campaign uh, from the Western media, from Western governments, um, and also the the carrying out of attacks that are blamed on Muslims. Now, most of those, as we've investigated them over the years, are very unlikely to have been carried out by uh, actual Muslim terrorists. They had a, always, in every situation, you see the strong hand of either intel services that was Madrid train bombing, the London bombings very clearly, of course, 9-11 as well. Uh, and then um, after that, <clears throat> kind of Al-Qaeda and uh, and more recently ISIS, which if you look just un- critically at the situation, you see that uh, ISIS is effectively a mercenary group that is in the pay or being trained and funded and armed by, uh, well, primarily sections of Western intelligence like the CIA, British MI6, in league with Saudi and other uh, Gulf royal monarchies who are basically have their agenda of pushing this idea of radical Islam uh, because that's what they espouse themselves. So, it, you know, it's, it's their thing, basically. And ISIS is basically has, has grown out of that. Now, you have, so you have Western intelligence and Western government hands all over that. And, of course, in the context of, I mean... <laughs> There's nobody questioning the fact that the, the, the vitriol and the rhetoric that came out from Western governments, from the British and the Americans against Assad. He has to go. He's evil. He's a, he's a dictator. He's a brutal dictator. He's evil. He's evil. We have, he has to go. And then you have this group of so-called ISIS jihadi mercenaries whose primary function seems to be to remove Assad, i.e. to do the bidding, to, to, to fulfill the wishes of Western governments. Does no one just put those two things together and like add them up and <clears throat> get the right answer, the obvious answer? So then when you have this group supposedly carrying out attacks in, in, in France and uh, in Belgium, uh, well, apply the same logic. I mean, there's got to be a connection there and it serves their purposes. So, um, but anyway, that's kind of digressing a little bit. The point being that Muslims, ha- Muslims have been demonized by Western governments and the Western media for more than 15 years plus mm-hmm. now. And the question is, at what point does that level of demonization and discrimination as a result of the demonization in societies, for example, in France, at what point does that just work on mm. certain Muslims' minds who are Muslim it, guys who are maybe a little bit unhinged? At what point does it work on them to the point where they just uh, lose the plot or a flip a, f- a switch flicks in their mind and they decide I'm going to kill some of these people these assholes and he's not necessarily what anchored in this guy's mind wasn't an actual belief or feeling that I'm going to go out as a martyr no rather I'm going to myself take advantage of this overall narrative right. to do something ha ah, you'll all remember me by yeah so it's not like there's, there's 
you guys were saying before the show. So well, this is kind of this, this. This sounds like it was the first actual incident, a clear incident of an actual reaction of a blowback. Mm. But even then, it's a weak one because it's not an actual Muslim saying, "You know what? I'm sick of this. Mm-hmm. They're treating us like shit. I'm going to go out and do something horrific." Mm. It didn't actually come from that place. No, he was just a bit crazy, probably. Yeah, he lost the plot, and he. I mean, that was. I mean, it might have been a bit of that uh, behind it, but. Um, I mean, as a Muslim in France, basically, particularly in Nice, you know, Nice is a very interesting place for it to actually happen uh, because Nice uh, would have a high percentage of kind of right-wing anti-Muslim sentiment. So not only is that uh, a good place if someone someone were to kind of want to facilitate this, it would, would, I'm not saying that's the case, but if someone wanted to target it, that would be a good fracture point. You would get a lot of people in Nice who would be, uh, would already have been quite uh, anti uh, Muslims and and, and anti immigration, for example, and, you know, to a certain extent racist. Um, But it also speaks to the fact that the life of French Muslims in places like Nice is particularly difficult. Uh, and they experience quite a lot of discrimination. So it's not surprising, looking at it from the other perspective, that someone uh, in Nice, some Muslim in Nice, would have basically just, you know, lost the plot and decided to go and do, go postal, as they say in the US, you know. I mean, that's a good example. I mean, there have been people in the US have that term go postal. It comes from uh, at least one particular kind of. Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, one particular shooting incident, mass killing, basically, where a postal worker just couldn't hack it anymore because the conditions in his work and also because he was a bit unhinged and he went in and killed a bunch of people. That was like several decades ago. Yeah. But the term go postal means basically it's one person just cracking and going and killing a bunch of other people who he has dreamt up a kind of uh, in his mind <clears throat> that that they are the ones who are, they're the, they're the focus or they're the source of his of his uh, bad luck in life or his persecution or the discrimination against him that he's experienced. Yeah, it, it just seems in, in, in thinking about all of this that um, the environment is being created uh, for individuals who are halfway to being unhinged to manifest right. uh, the, the very things that they're being um, vilified and falsely accused of being. And, you know, we've uh, – we'll get – to this a little later in the show, I think, but um, it. Well, if, even uh, well, maybe now just to sum up what what you're saying there is. I mean, we talked about this a little bit before as well. The mm-hmm. the idea is that after that, uh, after 15 years of, as I described, the persecution or the demonization of Muslims, the the the, the pitching of them uh, as terrorists and the bombing of their countries, and don't don't leave, don't question for a moment, don't doubt for a minute that. Uh, Muslims in France and in other European countries feel very strongly about the fact that for the past 15 years, Western governments have been bombing Muslim countries in the Middle East and in North Africa and killing Muslims. I mean, we if, if, it, if it's not happening to your race or your ethnicity or your religion, mm-hmm. you, you don't really get it. But if, if, try and put yourself in the position. Try and turn it around where you as a Christian, if you're a, identified as a Christian, mm-hmm. And you're living in a Muslim country, say, as a minority Christian, and Muslim governments are bombing Christians all around the world. How do you feel about it? You know, so 
how long do they follow? Do these Western powers follow that process of of effectively persecuting Muslims in this way, discriminating against them in Western countries and bombing them in their countries of origin, effectively, before someone says, "Hang on a minute," you know, I I well, before they lose the plot and basically say, "I'm going to take some revenge," uh, of course. And that would be the situation where these Western powers who have sought to demonize Muslims all along to justify their imperial designs in, in, in Muslim countries have actually created the reality that they have been pretending was real all along. Yes, and this is, a, this is actually a phenomenon we're seeing right here in the U.S. in the form of police abuse uh, towards anyone, but particularly towards blacks. Um, you know, I, I right, went- that's a very good example. Yeah, I went to my job this week, and uh, I was talking to someone in the office who had a reaction to um, one of these stories of, of a, a black man bas- just basically going on a shooting spree and uh, and shooting at people randomly, and uh, and some other events that have happened in the wake of the uh, Alton Sterling and um, Philando Castile murders, and. Um, you know, she she had a reaction to it, and and it was all about, you know, it to her mind it was just reinforcing how you know uh, how chaotic and and violent uh, the blacks are in this country, and not not to justify the the violent reaction and things that we've been hearing about in the U.S. recently, um, and I'm not talking about the Dallas uh, shootings necessarily, um, but what I said to her is, you know. Put yourself in their shoes. Try and understand uh, what they've been experiencing here for so long, uh, and and that it's going to come out in this unhealthy, violent, reactionary way. Um, so it just seems as though the the, the processes, the forces, the the, the demonization, uh, however subtler here in the U.S. against blacks and other groups, it's just all part of the same dynamic. All, all of these fissure points are being exacerbated uh, right. and, and kind of compelling the most unstable uh, of people in, in various societies to act out and, and become the very thing that they've been accused of being. Accused of, right. So we're going to take a, uh, either a question or a comment from a caller here. So, caller, are you on the line? Uh, hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Yeah, Who do we um, have here? Yeah, this is Kent from West Virginia. Oh, hi, Kent. Welcome back. And uh, you were talking about uh, the uh, going postal uh, phrase. Uh, now, it, it occurred to me, I've never done any research, but uh, anybody that uh, grew up way back when knows that um, after the Vietnam War, there was a terrible problem of uh, uh, veterans not being able to find work. And uh, the post office became the, it was designated as the um, place of employment for uh, Vietnam veterans. Hmm. And, of course, the post office always had sort of a reputation of them being a high-stress job anyway, you know, a lot of alcoholics and everything. But uh, I've often wondered, I've never done any research, whether uh, the people that actually went postal were Vietnam vets or the people that, you know, the management types that are in the post office had been Vietnam veterans maybe and, you know, and inflicted a lot of uh, uh, tension on the uh, people that flipped the lid. So I just wanted to throw that in. I don't know if anybody's ever done any research, but I'd like to wish somebody would actually research that. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm actually doing a little search right now to see if I can find anything like that. But, but that, I mean, that it, it would make sense. It doesn't. I don't think it necessarily has to be the case. But if it were, it would be an interesting connection, considering the yeah. yeah especially, and you could look at the same thing going on today with vets coming back and just the the extreme rate of mental illness with post traumatic stress disorder and suicide, and all of these. Uh, I mean, there have been several examples in the states of uh, these military vets going on these kind of mini or large shooting sprees i mean even this guy um was it was it micah johnson who mm-hmm. was yep yeah, who was an ex-military several uh, several of these of these incidents on military bases um so it seems like that's definitely a connection with this sort of phenomena yeah and the uh, the going postal phrase in the events um pretty well you know, timeline that pretty well coincide with when these vets would probably be in their middle age and, uh, you know, approaching retirement or something and that sort of thing. And uh, also, you know, there again, we always hear that these stories that these cops now that are doing a lot of these are um, PTSD vets. I don't know whether that's true or not, but there's always that sort of suspicion and allegation that that has um, spilled over into the police force and then you know, that resulted in what's going on now. All right. Well, was that all you had to share, Kent? Yeah, that's it. All right. Well, thanks for thanks for calling in. We hope you we hope to hear from thanks. you again soon. Thanks all for right. calling, Kent. All right. Well, I wanted I yeah. wanted to bring something. Or go ahead. I was just going to follow up on on what Alan was saying that it's a very good analogy uh, or comparison to make with the blacks in America and the way that they have been persecuted. Um, for a long time and marginalized in society um, and it seems that they haven't been subjected to that kind of treatment uh, with the same intensity as Muslims have over the past 15 years but it's been a longer, slower burn uh, for the blacks in America right back to you know days of uh, racism and stuff <clears throat> which hasn't really gone away that much I suppose um, and but now it seems with these uh, <clears throat> shootings, uh, recent shootings in, in Dallas and today in Baton Rouge, that it seems that there's a concerted effort to, again, stoke that particular uh, fracture point in the U.S. Um, and to and, and the question then remains, how long will it take for, because, I mean, we're fairly sure that the Dallas scenario that happened was in some way manipulated. I mean, there was we wrote about it, there's all sorts of, uh, I mean, from the, the mayor of Dallas and the police chief, chief of Dallas basically saying, yeah, there's more than one shooter here, but that gets turned into a, a lone wolf shooter, as has, has happened so often. That's almost a, a hallmark of an actual manipulated mass shooting, that there's some involvement for, from some shadowy state uh, operatives involved in that. Um, but the question then is, how long is it going to take now that they're focusing on in this way? Uh, on blacks in America and, and really ramping up the demonization of blacks and the persecution of blacks, uh, how long is it going to take before you get a real honest to God uh, kind of black person? Insurgency. Uh, yeah, going uh, going and, and killing uh, white people or going and killing cops, you know? Mm. Um, anyway. Well, there. I just wanted to bring up two two questions I have at this point about the Nice attacks. The first is this report again from the family members who say that um, they saw a change in behavior from their son, Bulel. Um, 
in uh, Muhammad in the in the weeks preceding the attack, and they say that in the immediately preceding the attack, he was calling them daily, whereas they hadn't heard from him since like 2012 before that, and that in those same weeks, through all kinds of like shady means, he had sent them about the equivalent of a hundred thousand U.S. dollars. And so he's, they said that they, he sent them this money illegally, like he'd get middlemen to send it and, um, like, you know, deliver cash. And the, so they were really shocked that they were receiving all this money from him because he had this low paying job and he'd just been fired mm-hmm. from his, from his delivery job with the truck. <clears throat> so question for me is where, where and how did he get this money? And, right. and then the second isn't really a question, but it's kind of, um, just, and a little interesting could be coincidence or not kind of thing and uh that has to do with this um al-qaeda you know propaganda magazine inspire uh put out mm-hmm. uh, uh put out a journal or an issue in 2010 where they called for these kind of lone wolf attacks using trucks and they basically describe um you know the exact scenario of taking a taking a big truck and just plowing down uh, people in a crowded area on a busy street somewhere. Now, um, I think some people will then use this to to then say that this guy was obviously and you know linked to Al Qaeda or, or ISIS or anything like that, or that he'd read this and been inspired by it. I don't, you know, that's not necessarily the case because you don't have to be a, a genius to come up with a plan like that. I mean, there are hundreds of different ways, like pretty simple ways that you can come up with to to kill a whole lot of a whole lot of people, um, it's you know even with even living in a police state, it's not that hard, um, mm. and that's that's why I think that you know the thing that Manuel Valls said recently is kind of true when he said that we just have to deal with Islamic terror, uh, we'll just have to live with it. In a sense, um, that's true of any nation that you'll just have to deal with any kind of terror incidents or whether. Um, genuine manufactured is, or or whatever. Right. Well, who caused it? You know, exactly. I mean, it's it's one yeah. part of the prime minister to say, or well, France to say, you just have to live with terrorism. Uh, mm-hmm. If it's an objective assessment of the situation, that it's just one of those forces of nature that you have to live with, like you have to live with thunderstorms and tornadoes and stuff like that. Exactly. But if the tornado is being manufactured and directed towards your house, then no, I don't really have to live with it. If you would stop messing around. And mm-hmm. provoking these kind of things, there's an awful lot you can do to ensure that we don't have to live with uh, terrorism, you know, but mm-hmm. you're obviously not really willing or you don't have the will to to do that because you get something out of the fact that we will have to live with terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, I mean, we, we're not saying, I mean, this guy, what we're saying about this terror attack in Nice is that this guy was in the van and did kill those people. How he got to that point, yeah. He could be character disturbed, personality disturbed, whatever. But you have to see it in the context of him as a Muslim in France and the demonization of Muslims around the world, and particularly in Western Europe and in the U.S. since 9-11, as a result of 9-11, and all the wars that Western powers have waged against Muslims and the demonization of Muslims to justify those wars. You have to see it in that context. And there's also a possibility, uh, we're not saying it's it's impossible, that he was he had his head messed with in some way or mm-hmm. other. Because, I mean, all you have to do is go and look at the New York Times if you, if you want an authoritative source, if you're one of those skeptics and disbelievers. Go and read New York Times article on FBI terror plots. 
some the title of it is something like FBI terror plot plots uh, of the FBI's own making, and I mean it's it's pretty it's there's no question about it whatsoever that when it's in the New York Times that all of these terror plots that the FBI has supposedly foiled over the past number of years uh, in the U.S. most a lot of them uh, kind of Muslim or Al Qaeda inspired supposedly terror plots. And it's detailed in this article, and you can read about it in many other places as well. The FBI, with uh, using one of their informants, identifies a fragile, uh, naive, um, you know, gullible, mentally whatever, Ill. mentally ill in some cases, in some cases, individual who they have noticed said something like, "I don't like America," on Facebook. Or they, you know, and they followed him basically, and they identify him. They find out where he lives, and they send one of their informants. And an FBI informant is usually a petty criminal or a big time criminal sometimes, who the FBI has caught and said, "You can go to jail. Or you can work for us as whatever we want you to be." In this case, for example, we want you to be an Al Qaeda recruiter. Okay, I'll do that uh, rather than go to jail. I'm your Al Qaeda recruiter. Okay, go and talk to that guy and tell him everything that we tell you to say to him. And that involves uh, befriending him, giving him some money, uh, talking to him about jihad, uh, encouraging him in, in anything he might think about, any negative views he has about the U.S., uh, and then grooming him in this way to the point where you, encourage, you maybe might uh, induct him into Al-Qaeda by having him swear an oath that you administer to him and tell him, now you're a signed up member of Al-Qaeda, you're a, a jihadi warrior for Islam. And now that uh, you have this position, how? what do you think about maybe blowing up a Sears Tower or waging a full ground war against America? And the guy's like, obviously, you know, his IQ is maybe 80 or something. And he's and he's like, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, and I'll also give you some money. Oh, well, definitely, yeah. Uh, so they gave him some more money give him some boots, maybe give him a fake bomb and tell him to go down to X destination and, you know, glory will be yours. 72 virgins in heaven, whatever. The guy goes down and they're waiting for him with the FBI. Mm -hmm. And it's, gotcha, foiled FBI terror plot all across the headlines. Mm -hmm. Well, That's exactly how it goes down. Now the question is, if the FBI have been doing that repeatedly, and you can bet your ass other intelligence agencies in the West have been doing exactly the same thing, how hard is it, instead of when that guy goes down with the fake bomb, he goes down with a real bomb or a real gun, and the FBI is there, but they don't do anything. And watch what happens. You have a Muslim terrorist, uh, and that's the end of the story radicalized Muslim. When was he radicalized? I don't know. He was talking to people on the internet. He might have met someone. Yeah, he met an FBI agent. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, uh, you know, put that scenario that is well known in the US, FBI terror plots and the way they treat these people and, and apply it to this guy in Nice. It's just, a, it's just a theory. Just a couple of other things that bear consideration. Like, quite often we're looking at patterns and um, I know that when I read that tidbit about uh, him sending money $100,000 U.S. Uh, or its equivalent to his family, you know, the first question is, oh, he, or, or the first thought is, he must have been paid off, of course, and, and was being enticed to, to do this. And then you hear about the, 
that journal that you mentioned, Harrison, um, in 2010, that, that suggested that one way of killing people would be to drive a truck and plow through a bunch of people. And, uh, and of course, it fits the pattern. Um, but there are also other possibilities that we're trying to entertain here, uh, and that may be the fact that, A, he reached some kind of tipping point and got involved in some illegal activity that had nothing to do with intelligence agencies paying him off. And um, I was thinking he might have just reached this level of chaos within himself where he kind of uh, hooked into or got connected to this information field about terror mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that he may have never even read about, uh, that kind of registered in his mind as a way to exercise his, his rage and, and, and help manifest. Uh, in what he did. So, you know, there are these, all of these alternate possibilities in the face of patterns that, that may look a certain way, but, but may not actually be the way that, uh, that the Western media would like to present it to be. That's, that's kind of what I was thinking as another possibility too. Um, because I recently started rereading a book that I'd read a few years ago called Corruption of Reality by John Shoemaker. And it's, it's a book that ties together three kind of big um, phenomena, religion, hypnosis, and psychopathology. And he basically says these are all manifestations of the same thing, which is the human ability to, uh, of suggestion. And, I mean, it's, a, it's hard to summarize in a, just a few sentences, but if I put it in context, if you have an individual who experiences some kind of psychotic break, um, like the way Shoemaker would look at it is that that kind of psychopathology is in essence um, a, a kind of self-hypnosis that the person gets put under. And when you're put in a state of hypnosis or suggestion, that, that opens you up to suggestions. So when, you're put, when, you're, when your mind is kind of like opened up in this um, psychotic way, then whatever is presented as a suggestion will then take root, and that becomes your, let's say, personal religion. And in psychopathology, then that's where you get... Um, Examples like um, paranoid schizophrenia or just any type of, of personality disorder or neurosis could be obsessive compulsive disorder or, or things like that. And so I could, I could see something like that happening where an individual living in this climate where there is this total information um, propaganda effort that's been going on for years, you experience a psychotic break and it's like your mind reaches out for the first available thing. It's like, and it can latch onto that as a justification. So I think it's even possible that this guy was um, even like self-radicalized, but in a very specific way. Uh, I'm not saying that's happened, just that it's a possibility that when experiencing, uh, if you're, if, if you're a, a Muslim, even not a practicing Muslim, but part of a group that gets identified as a Muslim from the people around you in the, in the society in which you live, then that, um, the, the force of that um, negative attention if you experience a psychotic break, can basically, you know, flip flip that switch inside of you, and you can psychotically, you know, you're you're in this psychotic state, and um, and shout Allahu Akbar before before doing this, because there there are some at least alleged eyewitness reports that this guy did shoot shout that out before he started the truck down. Now I don't know if we can trust those reports or not. <laughs> But the whole Allahu Akbar, mm -hmm. Allahu Akbar thing is just like it's such a piece of propaganda. It's like mm -hmm. 
uh, I mean, it's it's true, but pe- I mean, it's just for the simple Western mind who knows nothing and has been prevented from understanding anything about, particularly in the, in, in in the West and particularly in the U.S., where people just don't know uh, anything about. A lot of people don't know anything about the rest of the world. The people in the guy the the people in uh, Turkey, uh, the anti-coup. Uh, Basically, the civilians who got, in, who got out in the streets who were against the attempted coup and supported Erdogan, uh, all wearing, you know, normal clothes, not extremist Muslims at all, not wearing anything black or whatever, wearing, you know, Tommy Hilfiger tops and shorts and stuff and, <laughs> and who, you know, drink alcohol and, and, and stuff like that. Um, they were shouting Alu Akbar. God is great. Uh, right. Uh, you know, it's not. The, the 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 war cry of not job jihadis, you know. So the fact that anybody would ever, a Muslim would ever say that, regardless of what they're doing, is not evidence of anything. It's it's being co opted and used as a propaganda piece to kind of like to to affect. It's like this simplistic kind of catchphrase that's used to. to the only reason it works in spooking people or making them go, "Oh, he said that thing," is because of the. Uh, successful propaganda towards uh, saying that Islam is not just any other religion slash ethnicity, ethnic group. Mm-hmm. It's inherently evil. That's the subtext. Yeah. Once, once people have, have believed or are open to believing that the big lie that Islam is, is inherently a problem, not mm-hmm. just because it's another religion. No, 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 no. This one's different. Mm-hmm. Then, ah, he said, he said, God is great in Arabic. Well, Jesus, yeah, that explains that he was a psycho. Right. But, you know, even if he did say Alu Akbar uh, before he committed that heinous act, uh, it, it could have been meant in a whole a wholly different way. Like, you want Alu Akbar? Here you got it, type thing. You know, I'm, I'm, manif- I'm manifesting it before you right now. This is what you're accusing me of being? I'm going to be it. Or I'm going to react yeah. to it. Maybe, maybe. I've, Who knows? But... I have one other little tidbit. On the same night... At the fireworks events in Paris, um, a truck caught fire almost directly under the Eiffel Tower, mm. which was completely illuminated for the night. And so it had a strange effect of people sharing photos on Twitter of the Eiffel Tower appearing to be on fire because the smoke was billowing from the truck and going up through all the illuminated light. It, it's just, it, I don't think anything came of it. It was just put out and that was the end of it. Paris but is it was burning. A, Potentially symbolic, the Eiffel Tower is on fire. You know? mm. Yeah, Alex Jones so, had a field day with that one. With that particular thing, yeah, he that, was saying that there was this terror attack in Paris, and right, yeah. Alex, Alex Jones was talking about everything. Alex Jones says is this is well, he talks the globalists. The globalists are <laughs> out to get you, you know, uh, but also the, the UN. Everything is a UN plot to take over America. Mm. Uh, Dallas shootings, Orlando shootings, you know, Nice shootings, probably even the coup in uh, Turkey. It's the UN coming to take your guns away. Guy's just such a... Anyway, carry on. Well, maybe we should move on to Turkey. Yeah, let's do What's that. going on there? Well, before we go on to Turkey, one of the results of um, the Nice business was... Uh, the Interior Minister and Prime Minister Valls um, announcing, uh, asking the French, the, the French public, 
whoever was available to join the the army reserves, basically <laughs> go in for kind of boot, boot, boot camp training. And uh, so you're ready. And he also called up 26,000 of the army reserves to increase security in France. Um, so more, more troops on the streets and all that kind of stuff, you know. And there's the same guy who's saying, we just got to live with terrorism, you know. So, but that's not going to change anything. Now, I don't know. The thing is, France, there aren't a lot, France isn't a very militarized country in the sense of you don't see a lot of police, traditionally, you don't see a lot of police presence on the roads, on the streets. You don't see military presence on the roads, on the streets, etc. And it seems that, um, it's sad, but it seems that as a result of these kind of attacks that and France has been up to its neck in kind of like supporting Western and engaging in Western uh, bombings of, of Muslim countries, they want to um, turn that around and turn France as much as possible into a kind of a police state uh, to, to, and at the same time to uh, possibly, uh, like we mentioned already, um, exacerbate or poke or provoke that that possible fracture point between Muslims and non-Muslims in France. And France has the biggest non, uh, biggest Muslim population of any country in Europe. There's about 6 million Muslims, and most of them from uh, Algeria descent, you know, originally from Algeria and Morocco, where France had colonies. And that's why they're here. They're French citizens. And most, a lot of them have been born here, but they want to, possibly someone wants to, it seems, wants to create that kind of a division in France. And of course, that kind of thing isn't good for anybody. But mm-hmm. someone seems to get off on uh, creating a kind of a dictatorship type scenario, a military dictatorship as much as possible in so-called Western democracies. Someone seems to want to go there. Mm-hmm. And the thing about anyway. that is, uh, just one last comment on that, is that like more police presence, uh, tighter security state, that <laughs> that has done nothing and that will do nothing to stop like this kind of thing from happening because no matter how good your police state is, like I said earlier, it can't stop someone from on a dime deciding to speed up their car and run into a bunch of people on a busy street. It's just impossible. Right. So it makes no sense in the context for doing this. Exactly. Because, not, yeah. not, only, not only will it not help, but it'll actually make, it'll make things worse because in this context right now, the 26,000 uh, reservists, who will uh, be on the streets, let's say, at, at certain times or wherever they're they're placed? All of those guys are going to be know why they're going, why they're out there. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, there's twenty six thousand reserve military reserve uh, personnel on the streets of France. Why are they there? They're there to defend against to keep the French people protected, supposedly against or protected from Muslim terror attacks. Mm-hmm. Who does Muslim terror attacks? French Muslims. Who are they? Well, apparently, according to Nice, they're just some guy who lives next door to you. So, what is that going? What effect is that going to have on Muslims in France? It's going to up or increase the persecution and sense of alienation and discrimination against Muslims in France, which will very possibly lead to more situations like the thing that happened in Nice. And, you know, we, we've seen this happen in, uh, relatively speaking, in microcosm in, in Israel. Uh, you, you collectively punish an entire people in Gaza uh, and or the West Bank, uh, the Palestinians, for, uh, for someone who is um, 
reacting to or responding to the suppression, uh, many cases of which are manufactured uh, similar to the ways that uh, that we've been reading about in the U.S. with the FBI and, and Muslims. And and then you, you do, you genuinely get a, a backlash, a blowback among people who are going out in the streets with knives and and stabbing uh, Israelis out of out of uh, sheer desperation. So, and then the cycle continues. The Israelis come up with even more oppressive uh, rules, shutting off the water supply, or mm-hmm. uh, or or further collectively punishing the people in Gaza by bombing them. Um, so it it seems like there's been this test run uh, that we've already seen for the past how many decades already occurring in Israel that's been exported basically to France and to the U.S., and uh, and it's just getting worse and worse. Yeah. All right. Neil, what's, what happened in Turkey? Let's, let's, let's talk some Turkey here. Let's do a Turkey shoot. Turkey shoot? <laughs> um, Neil is... Uh, oh. Otherwise <laughs> occupied right now. Um... He'll be back momentarily. Um, Turkey. Coup. Almost. Then not a coup. Almost coup. The coup um, that wasn't. The coup that wasn't. Uh, pretty gruesome, actually, in terms of how it went down. Uh, a lot of people killed. I think over... I mean, it was over 100 civilians killed and... Uh, yeah, I mean, two hundred and fifty some people are killed, but amongst them, quite a lot of civilians. It just uh, happened all of a sudden, with jets and helicopters flying over Istanbul, and um, and people on the ground attempting to uh, uh, take uh, Erdogan party officials uh, hostage or prisoner, um, shooting at the actual. Uh, Parliament building in Istanbul. Bombs. Uh, uh, what did you say? Bombs. There were several explosions at various different right, government buildings. That kind of thing. Uh, tanks in the streets, uh, troops on the streets, but then it basically fizzled because, I don't know, uh, people got on the street, ordinary people. It seems that there is a lot of support despite uh, the impre- despite the the opinions or the 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 feelings amongst uh, in the West, uh, particularly in, in Europe and in the US, about Erdogan over the past uh, uh, you know maybe a year or two uh, that he's you know kind of roundly despised, particularly in in, in Europe and the US. Uh, there's a lot of support for Erdogan and uh, amongst the ordinary Turkish people. Uh, they get on the streets, and as you've seen, maybe some of the videos, they're basically standing in front of tanks, uh, stopping tanks, pulling soldiers out of tanks. Um, overpowering and arrest, you know, kind of uh, detaining effectively a soldier and beating soldiers who had attempted to, you know, block various bridges and stuff. Um, another one then is on uh, is on um, on a cell phone on a CNN presenter's cell phone as she's uh, presenting the evening news, giving his that's his speech. Not exactly, not very, not a glorious. Uh, counter-revolutionary move, but um, a counter-coup move, but uh, he, he was still there and, you know, his voice was heard, I suppose, better than nothing. 
but it seems that they just didn't have the uh, backing of certainly they didn't don't don't seem to have had the coup plotters don't seem to have had the backing of particularly the police forces mm-hmm. and they only had a relatively small number of uh, military personnel who were were part of it so that kind of thing really is destined to go nowhere um, um it's it's not even you're not even going to you don't you haven't even done enough the coup plotters hadn't even done enough to have to turn it into a kind of protract, protracted civil war mm-hmm. um they um you know it just it just fizzled because i mean if you're going to have a coup you need to have um you need to have first and foremost the the military behind you and most of the rest of the security forces and also um the people you have to have quite a lot of the the people um supporting or at least so that, that, that they won't be inclined to go out in the streets and fight with you because then you're going to end up with a civil war scenario. Uh, and they didn't have any of that. They didn't so even that have the, the they didn't even have the support of the opposition parties who have been <clears throat> right. speaking out against Erdogan's uh, policies in, in recent months. They all came out for Erdogan and against the coup. Mm-hmm. So... Are you guys getting any feedback from us? No. Yeah. Well, it's it's weird. Where whenever you speak, it sounds like someone's banging sheet metal in the background. Yeah, I think we know what that is. Okay. Um, but uh, well, I'll just let me, let me just let me just test my hypothesis here. Okay. Has it stopped now? Yes, it Almost, did. Almost more yeah. or less. Okay. Um, so. Yeah, there's a kind of whole backstory to this that you have to, I suppose you have to look at a whole backstory in terms of the internal makeup or the internal makeup, the internal makeup of the, of the power structures in Turkey <clears throat> and um, also the whole situation with Russia, the Russian-Turkish relationships uh, or relationship um, since, um, since the shoot down, for example, of that Russian plane. And also Erdogan himself and his party and the way he's been presented in the West and uh, and of course the, the Syria business. I mean, <clears throat> and this has happened, this coup has happened in the context of all of that, you know. So it can't be divorced from any of it, you know. Yeah, well, on that, we can get into a bunch of that background just by looking at what's been happening um, during and since the, the coup attempt, because when it first happened, almost immediately Erdogan um, said that this was this was a coup attempt on behalf of Gulen supporters within Turkey. Now, so Gulen was, um, Fethullah Gulen was Erdogan's ex-ally. Um, they were kind of buddies until around 2012-2013 when... Uh, there was a, a split between them. Gulen went, uh, I, I believe at that point, he moved to the States if he hadn't already been there. And the thing about Gulen is that he was intimately linked with the CIA. This guy has um, this Gulen, what's the, the name of his group? Gulen Foundation or something like that. That sets up mm-hmm. all kinds of Islamic schools all over the world, including the U.S. And this guy has been tied to the CIA and... Um, basically the CIA's Al-Qaeda operation, at least since the mid-90s. 
And so this guy is basically living in Pennsylvania right now. <clears throat> and he's part of like the same group that um, like Graham Fuller was, was part of. Graham Fuller is this ex-CIA guy whose daughter married the um, uncle of the Tsarnievs in the Boston bombing and mm -hmm. who was involved in this kind of Central Asian um, CIA op to basically um, foment this Islamic radicalism there, um, like, we see, like we saw in Chechnya and like we see in Libya and, and Syria, etc., Iraq. And so there's this whole CIA connection with Gulen, and since the fallout between Gulen and Erdogan, Erdogan has been... Just like any time something goes wrong or there's someone he doesn't like in, in Turkey, he says that, it's, that these people are linked to Gulen. Now, um, so he might just be saying that sometimes because Gulen's a, a convenient guy that he can, he, he can pin the blame on for all these people. But at the same time, there is this history of NATO um, CIA kind of collusion and involvement in the, the deep state in Turkey. <clears throat> and so during the coup, um, several people, because over at this point, I think over 6,000 people, like military personnel and judges, have been arrested for involvement with the coup. And some of the like the some of the specific names that have been mentioned have been tied directly to Gulen, and that includes the first person that they identified as the mastermind of the coup. I don't have his name handy right now, but he was uh, fired from the from one branch of the military just earlier this year. Um, because of his alleged ties with Gulen. And then, then uh, like several hours later or the next day, they said, okay, well, no, this guy wasn't the mastermind. There was this bigger mastermind. And he was the, he was the head military guy in the, uh, for the, the army division that was in charge of the borders with Syria, Iraq, and um, one other country. I'm not sure um, which direction it was, um, you know, uh, west or east of that. But this was the, the military guy in charge of that border region, co uh, which coincidentally is the region um, where there has been all that, um, you know, transfer uh, or basically the border has been open for all the terrorists going in and out of Syria and for the oil trade um, and Iraq and in and in and uh, well to and from Iraq as well. And so this guy, too, has been tied to Gulen. And so several of the Turkish officials have c come out saying the same thing, even to the point where um, one of them, I can't remember if it was Prime Minister Yild um, Yildirim or not, has ha said that the basically strongly implied that the U.S. had a hand in it too, and even saying that the that Turkey will consider itself at war with anyone who um, harbors Fethullah Gulen <laughs> and. Gulen in the states the right now, <laughs> exactly. So he essentially said that the U.S. or that the Turkey is at war with the U.S. right now, and one of the other people identified as being involved in the coup was um, the the guy that they're saying was the pilot that shot down the Russian jet at, from Incirlik Air Force Base, the Air Force mm -hmm. Base Incirlik, which ha which is basically a NATO base and has U.S. nuclear weapons, is currently mm -hmm. shut down. The power has been cut <laughs> off to it. And no one's allowed in or out of that base. And um, U.S. Air, uh, U.S. flights, jet flights from that base are right now grounded because they grounded the Turkey grounded all uh, all flights over the country, and so the U.S. can't take off from Incirlik Air Force Base or Air Base you know, in order to to carry out any airstrikes in Syria or Iraq. You know what I'd love? What's that? A couple of weeks ago, the Turks said 
they might let the Russians view their air force use the same yeah. base. Uh-huh. I love if they now let in Russians and they'll they'll have a hand. They basically have the tactical nukes or whatever yeah. sitting there. Well, you can. The problem is that that airbase you're talking about. Yeah, it has U.S. nukes, and you can imagine that the U.S. is not going to station its nuclear weapons in any airbase over which it does not have a serious amount of control, right? <clears throat> um, but. Just to give you an idea of the way the wind is blowing on this one, just to add to what you were saying, Harrison, the, the commander of that airbase that has those uh, U.S. nukes has been has been arrested uh, for being complicit in the coup. Mm-hmm. Now, the commander of an airbase that harbors or hosts U.S. nukes is gonna have to be some guy that has been kind of vetted or approved or whatever by the USA. And yet, according to Erdogan anyway, this guy was part of the coup. So maybe that's as close as you're going to get to, or one incident or as close as you're going to get to um, a kind of CIA fingerprints mm-hmm. I just got- uh, on, on this coup. But uh, I, yeah, the only thing I would say about coups is that... <laughs> It's not like the CIA is any stranger to coups. So any coups that happen in any country of strategic interest to the U.S., you can be fairly sure that it's a CIA coup. Mm-hmm. Just uh, I just received some breaking news. Apparently, that in Sherlock Air, Air Force Air Base, sorry, is now reopened, and that the so the American jets can fly again now. So there must have been some kind mm-hmm. of uh, agreement reached on mm-hmm. that issue, at least. And someone in our chat room just said that today the Turkish Minister for Work and Social Security has clearly stated that the U.S. of A. is behind the coup attempt. Hmm. So there's that. Well, it's like a no-brainer, you know. Uh, it's it's kind of thing where if you just uh, when a coup happens anywhere in the world, if there was a if there was like bets on it, if I could go to a a bookmaker's, you know, a betting shop, mm-hmm. and they were they were taking bets on who is most likely behind this, and they would pay out if there's some kind of way to verify it. I would put my money on the CIA every time it's because a, you look at the history of it. It's, it's been a like, while though since there's been such an overt coup in such a pretty right. big and you know pretty fairly Western country. Right, but that that gets the this crux, was in your face. But that gets the crux of the matter, and it's because when I mean, you look at Maidan, it's, it's a couple of years ago that was clearly a Western CIA slash State Department. Ooh. Uh, implicated, involved. Well, uh, not clearly. It can be deduced easily. No, well, what I mean is the vehicle through which it formally happened was that the people of Ukraine no. had an uprising. It was but, a democratic revolution. That's right. the narrative. There's right. no such cover here. This is out and out just a military coup. Right, but there's still no hard evidence for it, and that gets to the crux of the matter. The point is that there are, I mean, the CIA have been obviously having coups in countries all around the world over and over again. They do it in different, various different ways. But this one, if it's a CIA coup, yes, it was, like we said, uh, a rush job mm-hmm. and it was and it failed, which is, in fact, unusual for CIA coups. That it failed and appears to be, appears to have failed quite spectacularly in the sense that um, not only has it failed, but uh, they're going to possibly lose a lot. The West, i.e. the USA, is going to lose a lot as a result of this misguided or ill-advised coup attempt. So the question is, why was it so 
uh, why does it appear to have been such a rush job? I mean, we say it's a rush job because it kind of came out of nowhere and it went nowhere. Um, well, I think it really so just suggests how desperate and how much of a knee-jerk emotional reaction uh, the CIA and the West have had to Erdogan's rapprochement with Russia. And, uh, and, and so, Syria. And Syria, right. And, and right. so someone which said, also came, which we also have to do something now. Right, because that came out of the blue as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it fits that if uh, all of a sudden, and it has it's kind of shocked pretty much everybody the way um, <clears throat> Erdogan uh, made that apology, I suppose. Um, and according to Putin, yeah, it was a full apology. And <laughs> despite what he said, he, he basically said, whatever you want, sorry, you know, basically my bad. What do, you need, what do I need to do to make this up? Uh, and then <clears throat> immediately after that, the talks about um, possibly uh, letting Russian planes land or use in Sirlik Air Base and NATO Air Base. And then pretty much quickly afterwards, the uh, his announcement of, um, of, of reestablishing uh, ties or dialogue, whatever, with the Syrian government, that a turnaround on the, on the part of Erdogan and the Turks. Um, I mean, whether or not he was able to, he's able to do that, um, but the very fact that he came out and said it suggests that something had changed, and it looks like it was directly, uh, it directly implicates Russian-Turkish relations, i.e. this was, this came out of a, the, the dialogue, you know, private dialogue between uh, Erdogan and his people and Putin and his people. Uh, and it happened very quickly. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously things happen quickly. It happens, you get announcements and people say things, but the, the, the shocking thing about this is that Erdogan, at least as far as the Western media is concerned, Erdogan was up to his neck in, he was like first in line for hating on Assad and uh, supporting ISIS for the past two years. And then for someone like, and if you throw in the Russian uh, shooting down of the Russian plane, then, well, he hates Russia too. He just shot down one of their planes. So for someone like that to within a short period of time to do a, ma- a complete flip around and that is, is the shocking part of it. Yeah. Well, uh, usually to come around uh, a change in policy would take a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Well, I was looking at the background, some of the things that have been going on just for the past couple of years try to put this all in context and before the Erdogan Gulen split Gulen or Erdogan was presented in the Western media as this, uh, like as the bastion of democracy in, in Turkey and that it was Turkey was this modern democracy. It was so great. And yet there was nothing but good press. Now, very soon after that schism, the, the line started to change and people were, the Western media was talking about like, Erdogan being the the good dictator, or there were more articles on how corrupt Turkish politics were, and the the line started to change. And this right. was probably because during this time, Erdogan had basically um, kind of bucked the empire in certain ways. He was right. He was about to sign a deal with China for a for a big uh, like military. Uh, I can't remember which weapon system it was, but to buy Chinese weapons. He was saying, he even said to, uh, to Putin at one point, I believe it was, that if, if Turkey got full membership in the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation 
organization is that what it's called that uh, that he would that the EU, that the EU would be finished for him and they would, the that the Turkey would have no interest in the EU so that he was showing signs of uh, or the Turkish government was showing signs of this kind of move towards the more the Eurasianist perspective and integration mm-hmm. and um, in addition to that um, Davutoglu at the at the time the prime minister he had this policy of uh, I believe it was called something like uh, friends with everyone, or something like that, and basically uh-huh. establishing good relations with all of the all of the countries in the region, which included Iran, Iraq, Syria, and 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 so these were all kind of like red lines for the U.S. And that's when this that's when the the Western press started turning on Erdogan, but they didn't go like the the whole hog. Um, I mean, he wasn't removed from power at that time, and I think that might have been. Imp- because um, because of the the involvement of Turkey with the so-called anti-Daesh operation, and what that really was was you know the Turkish Turkish facili- uh, facili- what's the word <laughs> facilitating facilitation. facilitation of of this whole um, you know funneling terrorists and weapons and money into Syria for regime change. So that might have been the um, the thing that allowed allowed him to stay in the good graces of the American Empire to a certain extent. And then, so that that goes on for about a year and a half. And then, in March of this year, all the neocons start coming out and saying what a horrible dictator <clears throat> Erdogan is. They even wrote this open letter, and they have a history of open letter writing open letters to to people they don't like, um, who then get removed from power in one way or another. And um, so that happened in March, and in that same month there were all these reports starting to come out in the Western press about a possible military coup. And then the military in Turkey denied it, saying, oh, no, we're not planning a coup. But the... the and, <laughs> but, yeah, sorry, go ahead. one other thing in March, in late March, the U.S. Um, withdrew about 800 personnel from Turkey and their mm. families mm-hmm. because of the security situation. Sorry, one. Yeah, so basically something was going on starting in March, and it had been brewing for a while before then. So now I'm speculating here that um, what I think you know could have happened, maybe, I'll get your guys' thoughts on it after, is that <coughs> that at that, at this point, you know, receiving that letter from the the neocons, Erdogan must have must have realized something was afoot. He may have even had some information about. Um, these plans, if they were actually um, real plans um, that being uh, floated at the time, and that um, so we fast forward now to this week, and um, there's a lot of kind of kind of rumors floating around on Twitter um, that, that were going around during the coup, and some of them were saying that this coup was. Um, it was kind of a preemptive coup because Erdogan had been planning a kind of purge of these CIA, NATO, Gulen um, elements within the military. Now, now I think it's, you know, I have no idea if it's true or not. I think it's plausible, though. If, and it might even be a pretty smart move, if Erdogan knows that there's a coup being plotted and he, and, and you know, he and his advisors say, okay, well, what are we going to do? Well, let's plan to to take them you know arrest them all take them all out in es- and then that actually so even if there had been a coup, a coup planned for a long period of time that might have um, given the impetus to push the plans forward even if they weren't totally prepared 
And uh, I, I don't know, maybe that's the reason why the coup failed so badly, because it, it, you know, they didn't have full control of the media. They didn't put all of the important, um, you know, government positions and, and um, people that weren't willing to go along with it in the military. And they didn't detain them. They didn't have popular support. They didn't put forward, you know, a clear um, image of who was actually behind the coup and who was basically going to take over. These were all failures on the part of the people plotting the coup. So it really seemed like it was, it was not necessarily a last-minute decision, but something that was put into into effect um, before all you know all contingencies had been allowed for and planned for, or they were just stupid and thought they could get away with it. I don't know. Just just one thing before we give what we think it is. Um, there is a precedent for a CIA-organized coup which was set up to fail. But it took the better part of 60 years for the, for the truth to come out. That's the Bay of Pigs. The Bay of Pigs was meant to fail. And then Kennedy was meant to look like an idiot mm. to basically the U.S. and in particular his, his, mm. his military structure. Um, we only know that because of a recent book um, on Alan Dulles. It makes it fairly clear that Dulles knew it was going to fail. Mm. I was happy with that. But that's that's kind of where Kennedy was in on it, if you know what I mean. But this is a slightly different situation where Erdogan, as in the place of Kennedy, was actually the, the subject of the coup, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I think you pretty much uh, summed it up there, Harrison. Um, Turkey, for a long time, uh, as part of the kind of Gladio networks, the Stay Behind networks uh, set up by by NATO, by by the West, by the US, uh, in European countries, uh, to you know, keep the commies out basically, and to to wage war on any left leaning governments in Europe that might turn commie, quote unquote. The same kind of networks were set up in Turkey, and have maintained or held a lot of power in Turkey since then. There, it's called the deep state or the shadow government or the basically like a fifth column that, that runs the country. In Turkey, it's called Ergenikon. Yeah. Um, so they, uh, this, these kind of groups, this intel, parts of the military to a certain extent, but mostly in the intelligence services. Um, they're the kind of ones, and it's kind of similar to the way Western countries are, are really run as well, you know, because as most people should know, um, the real kind of power brokers in, in Western so-called democracies are the, the intel agencies and uh, those various types of different uh, non-elected groups, effectively, that really uh, define the policies uh, uh, of, of Western countries. The same is true in, in Turkey. And um, I think Erdogan, it's possible that Erdogan over the past number of years has been uh, engaged in a concerted effort to battle those forces and to wrest control from them or at least wrest some control from them. And um, part of the, the way that he has se seems to have done that is to, I mean, his primary focus, and it's a very uh, smart and really the best way to go about that is to appeal to the people, to get the people on your side, um, to appeal to what, you know, to popular interest, popular sentiment. And I think that is the source of, uh, the allegations or the claims, which are partly true, of of um, Erdogan's kind of 
dictatorial leanings and also his Islamist leanings because, you know, while Turkey is may not be seen as really strict Islamic fundamentalist kind of country, uh, the people there are still um, are still Muslims and they and they value Islam, they value the religion, the, the majority of them, I think. And they have also uh, been subject like Muslims in 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 every country have been affected by the last 15 years of this, what is effectively a war on Islam, what is seen as a war on Islam by the West. They see it as a new crusade, as I said, as George Bush uh, described, it's the ordinary person in the street feels that that causes the ordinary person, the ordinary Muslim in the street in a Muslim country to feel identified with and want to protect uh, their religion. Um, So... I think that's what Erdogan has been doing, and that's the result of that's that's the source of of these that kind of the 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 rhetoric in Western newspapers about him being a dictator and being a being a kind of you know tending towards strict Islam and stuff like that. Uh, he's doing that because that's what the people wanted, and the fact that uh, so many people came out in the streets and effectively uh, played a major part in 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 putting down this coup. Uh, is is testimony to the to the support that Erdogan had. So, um, and it's there's also been allegations that while Erdogan has been uh, blamed for allowing ISIS fighters to easily travel across the border into Syria as a way to, you know, to bring down the Assad government, etc., he, he's been roundly kind of condemned. I mean, that has come out to the point where the average person in, in the street, and in, at least in Europe anyway, uh, thinks very poorly, thinks very badly of um, of Erdogan and knows him to be uh, the guy who is supporting ISIS, blah, 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 blah. Um, but, but there's allegations that um, there's allegations that he didn't really have control uh, over that, and that in fact that, that project was a project of this kind of fifth column, deep state kind of actors who were effectively doing so on behalf of the real or the primary supporter of and funder and trainer and armor of ISIS mercenaries, which is Western governments, in particular the U.S. So, uh, I mean, we know, we're fairly confident that the CIA and uh, other Western intelligences have been up their necks in effectively arming and funding and perpetuating the existence of ISIS. And if anybody in Turkey is doing the same thing, then it may not be Erdogan. It's more likely to be this fifth column element that is effectively a remnant or the the child of NATO Gladio networks that were set up in Turkey during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And even if Erdogan is and has been aware that it's going on, you know, what can he do? Um, he, he's between a rock and a hard place. And you think about... Uh, like I think he's been put in that situation, and it's all done deliberately in order. It's it's an, it's for plausible deniability. And same thing with Saudi Arabia and the recent release of the twenty eight pages, where you have a kind of middleman who is implicated. Um, you know whether they want to be implicated or not, and whether it's them personally or not, or they're just um, you know um, guilty by association. That puts that one step of of remove from the people who are actually. Um, you know, directing all of it in the first place. So Turkey is the is the one that everyone knows is involved 
in funding and helping ISIS, but and you'll, you'll even find that in Western media, mainstream media, but no one mentions, well, you know, who's putting Turkey up to it? And then you don't right. get you don't get the the context and the the details. Well, which part of the Turkish establishment is doing this? You know, how aware is Erdogan? And if Erdogan is aware, well, you know, put yourself in his position. What might he? What might what decisions might he be having to make in that context? Like um, right, exactly. Well, I have a question for you guys. So we've heard about Erdogan's son Bilal having uh, intimate business ties. Uh, with ISIS uh, facilitating the um, the selling of the oil uh, that's been extracted, stolen really from Syria, brought into Turkey, sold elsewhere, which suggests that you know that Erdogan is this kind of uh, mafia boss in a way that has mm-hmm. been exploiting all of these events in Syria, um, and and also suggests how up to his neck he is in all of this business in a way that um, that suggests that he is culpable for a lot of what we've been seeing in Syria. The Russians may have done, done that to put pressure on him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that came out. I mean, yeah, you notice that it was mainly Russia who was, who was um, putting that story out there and providing that evidence, particularly the, the truckloads of oil uh, and, and in fact, not just pointing out that there's truckloads of oil coming from uh, uh, Syria, of Syrian oil across the border into Turkey, but then bombing them as well. So um, that they're saying that, and, and they may have released data as well about uh, was the Russia was it RTE and stuff, or did it come from Russia that uh, Erdogan's son was involved? I think that did it, right? I think so. Which yeah, may be the case, but you know, mm-hmm. but you know, my. Uh, my father doesn't have a lot of control over what I do, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. He probably doesn't like it. He probably doesn't like it. <laughs> probably does not approve. Uh, <laughs> he may not approve, you know. So I mean, it's 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 nuanced, you know, and it's you can't just apply any kind of black and white. It's, it it gets murky, and and yeah, no one's you know got clean hands type of thing. But um, as Neil said. Uh, it's interesting to think that Russia was doing that to kind of uh, not put pressure on the people who are really behind this, this deep state in Turkey, this NATO-aligned deep state in Turkey who were behind these, uh, you know, the, not only the funding or the transfer of ISIS back and forth between Turkey. And that gives an example of the, the extent of their power that imagine Erdogan did not agree with that necessarily, but he could do nothing about it. That gives or an example that, of their... Yeah. That it came out that he doesn't, he, he can't secure his borders of right. his own country. Because, yeah, because, well, he loses face then with his borders. And, right. Well, what's mm-hmm. going on here? Yeah. Same thing with the shoot down uh, of the jet. I mean, he's got exactly. to he's got to own up to it if he's going to be the supreme leader of Turkey, right? And exactly. now we understand why he said yes. We didn't. No, we didn't. Yes. Wait. Ah, damn it. You see, <laughs> yeah. he was left holding the can by the same fifth column mm-hmm. that sought to destroy Turkish-Russian relations. And who has been gunning for Russia and trying at every opportunity to thwart Russia for the past four or five years? Mm -hmm. Well, it's been America. And I wondered at the time, um, the Russian reaction was very straight down the middle. They weren't, you know, there was going to be no nuances for them. Now you could just say, well, they had to. But I wondered, 
uh, was it a bit of play acting? Yes. Well, they did what they had to do, I mean, for public opinion. What yeah. you have to factor into this all the time is when making these analyses of, of what governments do and why they do and don't do them. You have to factor in the fact that these governments, the Russian government, the Turkish government, the American government, whatever, any government, also have to say the right things for public opinion. Mm-hmm. You know? And they speaking have to, of... Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, speaking of saying the right things, uh, you know, the, the I think it was the labor minister of, of Turkey had actually, as you were saying earlier, Harrison came out and accused the USA, the US, of being behind the coup. So it's just been interesting to hear, um, you know, the White House briefing fellow and Kerry say, we're not behind it. You know, you're saying these types of things about us that could hurt our relations. And uh, and Turkey has been presenting information, uh, probably compelling information, to suggest that uh, that this this um, the CIA asset has been behind the coup, and mm. uh, and and the U.S.'s position has been well, we we see no compelling information to suggest that that he should be extradited and brought back to Turkey. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, just more kind of deny, deny, deny on the part of the U.S. Uh, when it's clear they must have had some part in it. Yeah, well, some of the people involved have landed in Greece looking for asylum and been arrested. Hmm. They're in, in Greek custody right now. Um, the thing that strikes me about the situation is that Erdogan finally got a clue. Er- Erdogan finally understood that. His policy beforehand, which appears to have been infused or informed by the idea, his own hubris or his own ego, uh, the idea that he could forge his own course, his own independent Turkish course kind of thing between this grand scale geopolitical and hot, sometimes war, covert war between Russia and the West or Russia and China and America. Uh, that he could uh, maintain his own independence type thing or Turkish independence and even get a bit from both, if you know what I mean, play one off against the other. You know, okay, USA, Europe, I'll do this for you, but what am I going to get in return? How about EU membership? How about three, six billion dollars? How about, and then send to Russia, mm, Russia, not sure what have you got to offer, you know, sitting in the middle and trying to bar- make a bargain with both. And the, Turkey isn't strong enough or independent enough or, or important enough uh, to do that. And he should have taken a leaf out of Assad's book, which is basically... Pick a side and stick with it. Right, pick a side and if he's smart enough, throw his lot in with Russia. Because anybody who attempts to chart a kind of uh, independent course when they're a country like Turkey that's so strategically important uh, is going to just, I mean, you're gone, basically. You're going to be, you're going to lose. You're going to fall between two stools, essentially. Um, And I think he finally figured that out and, you know, saw the writing on the wall and and it's been brought home to him uh, very, very uh, personally over the past few days. Uh, And he's lucky that he's still there. And if he's smart enough, he'll realize, okay, I get the picture now. And he'll um, basically begin to uh, 
um, do what's really in Turkey's interest and and use Russia. I mean, look for a protector effectively, a big uh, a big protector, and the best thing he could do. I mean, he can pick the NATO in the US if he wants, but the best thing uh, would be given where he is and given the situation in the EU and given the situation in the US, the best uh, option for for Turkey would be to align as closely as possible with Russia. It would be an astonishing development. I mean, the modern Turkish nation state is is a creature that's completely created, has been guided all the way along by the Western empires. So it would be a major shift if it goes that way. Money's a slip. (laughs) Quick cup and lip, as they say. Especially when these people are just full of their full of their own wishful thinking, and you know we rule the world, we can do whatever we want. You know, they're going to increasingly, I think, find out that that's not the case anymore. And in their desperation, they're going to lash out and make even bigger mistakes. Mm-hmm. And this was a big one. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. I mean, if if not only for the failure of the coup, but if if it push if it has given Erdogan, which it seems to have given Erdo, Erdogan and his people the opportunity to go around, the justification to go around and kick out as many of those fifth columnists as possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a big failure. It's a it's a shooting yourself in the foot scenario for the CIA. You know, absolutely. Well, anything more on the Turkish coup attempt before we go to our next segment? No. no? All no, right. I think we can move on. Then. We are going to go to a police state roundup. They just said they did not have a warrant. Get out of my house unless you have a warrant right now. Brent, are you on the line? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, Brent. Um, well, good morning. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Brent. Well, morning. Wake up call. <laughs> this is your wake up call, Brent. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess the big news right now is the shooting that just happened in Baton Rouge, literally at 9 a.m. this morning. Uh, three pl- pre- police officers were shot dead and several others wounded in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, the mayor has said um, it happened about 9 a.m. this morning, um, about one mile from Louisiana State Police Headquarters on Airline Highway. Um, it was reported that somebody was walking along, like out of the uh, out of a place, and he was armed with some sort of assault rifle, described as wearing all black with his face covered, um, and <clears throat> cops uh, were. They, they got a tip that somebody was walking around with an assault rifle. They went to check it out, and as soon as they approached, they were, uh, they were fired upon. Um, and one of the guys that lives close by said he heard about 10 to 12 gunshots go off. Um, there's been reports of multiple shooters. Uh, one guy has already, they've said they shot one guy dead. And that they are still on the hunt for uh, at least two more people. Um, Not a lone wolf? Well, you know, that's what we're going to see. You know, in the next 48 hours, this could all, could all morph. Um, I've, I'm looking at a couple different stories right now, one on the New York Times, one on USA Today. And uh, in the New York Times piece, the, uh, the governor, John Bella, wears 
he called it an unspeakable and unjustified attack. Rest assured, he said, every resource will be available to the state of Louisiana will be used to ensure that the perpetrators, plural, are swiftly brought to justice. Um, and on the USA Today piece, it says one gunman was shot dead, two other suspects may be at large. A witness told uh, one of the TV stations that a man dressed in black with his face covered was shooting indiscriminately when he walked out between a convenience store and a car wash across from Hammond Air Plaza. Um, they basically like lock down the whole area. They've got the highway shut down. They're advising people to stay indoors. And if they see anything suspicious, report it immediately to law enforcement. Um, they were shooting at, at passersby, at shoppers, or at police in specific. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like any um, any citizens have been hit, like random people. Um, it's it says that he was shooting indiscriminate, indiscriminately, but then again, it says uh, only officers have been killed and several more were injured. Um, and the details pretty, on this are kind of sketchy. That's some, that's some pretty lucky shots then, just be, to be shooting indiscriminately and only hit policemen. Discriminately, yeah. discriminately, indiscriminately. Yeah, the details, like I said, it's still very, very early. This just happened, so the details are kind of sketchy. Um, but what I am seeing is that there are definitely two different stories that say there's been multiple shooters and multiple perpetrators, mm-hmm. and one guy shot dead. So I'm, I'm pretty confident that this will turn into some sort of, um, you know, lone wolf narrative again. It's just. It's just that's the that's the pattern. Um, it won't, wouldn't surprise me if they somehow try to tie him into the protests. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was looking on Facebook, and Mayor Mike Rawlings, who's the uh, the mayor of Dallas, he's come out seven minutes ago and uh, condemned the the violence and did a wonderful job of tying it into peaceful protesting. He said, "Violence against our police officers under any circumstances is not acceptable and poses a grave threat to all of us." Those peacefully protesting police across the country must swiftly condemn this type of violence against law enforcement. And it just kind of, you know, it tickles me a bit because, you know, we cover these police violence stories all the time. But it's not very often that you hear a police officer come out and condemn violence against citizens. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, and somehow it falls to the protesters to condemn this type of violence is a bad thing. And it's like, I mean, we all agree that violence is bad and should never be used. Um, right when there's other alternatives to, 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 to go at it, but it's just now it's, it falls to the protesters. It's their job. And, and Brent, doesn't to, this, doesn't this come right on the heels of some crazy police behavior in Baton Rouge just like a week ago? Yeah. It was oh the yeah. The protesters have, they've, there've been protests there regularly. Um, and these protests have not been generally like well tolerated by the local authorities. They've, um, they've shut them down brutally um you know they go in with they look like stormtroopers when you see the the video from from twitter and some of the things that the protesters have been posting they have full riot gear helmets body armor you know assault rifles at the ready um they the one one group of people i saw them driving in a an lrad armed tank and an lrad is basically it stands for long range acoustical device it's a sonic weapon so it blasts this really high pitch really irritating noise and the idea is that it disperses the crowd so they were moving this LRAD tank very slowly through a crowd of people. And anybody that didn't immediately jump out of the way, they just grabbed them, you know, slapped some, uh, some plastic handcuff ties on them and just shuffled them away. So mm-hmm. they also, uh, there was a woman who basically offered 
protesters safe refuge on her property. You know, she owned the house, she owned the property. And she's like, you know, okay, well, they don't have to be on the street. They can come onto my yard. They're more than welcome to stay here. Um, it's totally fine. And the officers surrounded the whole area, started grabbing people off her property, throwing them into the street, and then arresting them for blocking like a public roadway. And their excuse for that was that they, oh, well, some of them had gotten onto the highway before. And so they were just, you know, they were pursuing that. You know, there's something really interesting here with this Baton Rouge business because last, uh, the day of, more or less, the Dallas shootings um, of police, the FBI had issued one of their gold code warnings, um, which was uh, informing law enforcement officers of a threat to police from specifically, they said, from, uh, from the um, Black Lives Matters protesters, etc., um, uh, as a result of the Alton Sterling shooting. And they said specifically in Shreveport and Baton Rouge. And that was on the 8th of July. But uh, immediately after they issued that, that, that memo to police forces around the country, and in, specifically in Shreveport and Baton Rouge, then you have the shooting in Dallas. And a week later, you have a shooting in Baton Rouge that the FBI talked about previously. And as part of this memo, as part of the evidence for this memo, they cited uh, social media postings kind of saying, um, you know, uh, you know, somebody, some, some people posting, rule number one, kill every police, you know, and then telling it to copy and paste, blah, blah, blah. But... Um, one of the interesting things about it, and this gets back to what we were saying at the very beginning of the show in relation to Nice and how the demonization of Muslims and black people in the U.S. and creating, turning them into terrorists effectively through phony terror attacks and demonization is that as part of this memo, uh, they, the FBI issued this picture of that has supposedly been posted on social media of a police officer in his blue uniform on his knees with his hands tied behind his back and a Black Lives Matter guy with a with a knife cutting his head off. Oh, Jesus. A la ISIS, right? Yeah. So making a direct connection between Jihadi John ISIS and the beheadings with Black Lives Matter. So it, yeah, it been, we're on the money with that kind of analysis of what they're trying to do. Yeah, they've been really trying to tar and feather Black Lives Matter. Um and if you look at some of the stories in the conservative press, uh, someone showed me like a, a Breitbart article, which is basically like the Fox News of the Internet. Um, they showed this like Black Lives Matter uh, lady who was apparently like, I don't know, I don't even know if it was a real story, but they were basically tar and feathering her and showing how she was this like very corrupt individual. And um, it just it just struck me as, as, you know, kind of like a, it's like a psyop, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, it's, you know, a very large movement, encompasses a lot of people. You know, anybody can kind of, you know, join in and say that they're, you know, in the group. Um, so it's it's very ripe for, um, you know, anybody that wants to, you know, paint the movement poorly or, you know, just, you know, useful idiots um, to, to stand up and kind of, you know, represent the movement and... Right. Just sit there and you know people can condemn that one individual oh on this one individual is exactly what all of black lives matter is all about and it's not true um but yeah, yeah that's it's just 
unbelievable. Uh, and, you know, like, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of these. And, you know, it struck me as that it's whenever there's a, a Black Lives Matter, you know, event, you know, like in Dallas, there was a huge protest, you know, in Baton Rouge, that the protests have been happening pretty much ongoing um, since Alton Sterling. And um, now we're seeing that this, this pattern of being shot at police. Yeah, it just it just strikes me as as ridiculous. You know, I mean, Black, Black Lives Matter is basically an organization populated mostly. It's not an organization, but it's a movement, and the people that gravitate towards it are just ordinary people. I mean, who who are protesting against the very obvious police brutality against black people but almost in general it gets a lot of white people there it's as a well meme. because it's they a see uniting it. meme right and it's justified you know it's, i mean it's it's based on a real problem in us society which is police brutality against people so can you imagine someone uh as a member of that movement uh producing a a graphic that directly connects black lives matter with isis in the current climate why would they do that <laughs> Yeah, it's just our job. Obviously, the people who don't want Black Lives Matter or people on the street protesting against cops and and against corrupt government, etc., the people who don't want that happening are the ones who want to associate that kind of a movement of people basically seeking social justice with the other demon that they've created uh, to manipulate people around the world, which is ISIS. Yeah, it's very, very straightforward to our job. Um, And... It's just like, it just, and the police violence keeps happening. Like I have a whole bunch of stories lined up here that we could go into. Um, shoot. Don't let's, shoot. Let's see. Hands up. Don't shoot. <laughs> this one is from Texas. Um, Alva Brazil. They said, Houston police said he was waving a gun around and pointed at them when, when they opened fire. But surveillance footage from a nearby gas station, you know, basically shows that he had his hands in the air and he was actually had his hands up and was kind of like twirling in a circle to just show that he didn't have anything. And cops get out of the car and literally it's a matter of seconds passed before they, they gunned him down in the street. Um, so yeah, they lied there. Um, there's another headline, um, cops attack autistic man after he schooled them on the law regarding service dogs. Uh, video uploaded to Facebook this week shows how mere act of being criminal uh, in the modern day police state uh, as U.S. cops launch full assault on homeless people across the country. Um, basic right to exist is under attack. In a video, homeless man um, is reported to have autism, is assaulted by a half dozen cops for no reason. Um, according to the person who filled the incident, the police approached another person who was homeless. He had his dog with him, and he was trying to explain to the officers that um, that the dog was was his service animal, um, and that was enough to provoke cops to to jump. And the, the, you can watch the video. There's like six or seven cops jumping on this one guy, you know, just because he tried to explain to them that it was a service animal. Um, there's another video, uh, from Georgia where these police officers were serving a warrant, um, and they had got the wrong guy. So, um, they approached this guy and, um, basically, you know, are asking him, he was at work, he was an auto mechanic and they were trying to figure out if he was this guy, Michael, and they, um, proceeded to tase him twice, uh, less than a minute after arriving on the scene. Um, they asked him to produce identification and he was just, you know, like very 
I guess he was very scared because a bunch of armed officers surrounding him. He was just working in a car, so he had his hands, like, you know, out on the wheel. And um, they were, you know, asking for his name, asking him to get inform- to, to get his ID. And, you know, in this climate, just reaching for your wallet and get you shot. So he didn't do that. And, you know, he's told them that his name was, was Patrick. And the guy that they were looking for was a Michael. And um, they jumped him. It was 38 seconds elapses between the time officers asked for his name and when one cop says, all right, tase him. And that video is also uh, <laughs> it's from a dash cam video. That's also available on the internet. Um, another headline from uh, Counter Current News. Police say tasering eight-year-old Native American girl was justified. I mean, <laughs> I don't even know if we need to go into the details on that. It's just a perfect example of, of this mentality. You know, and it's, it's whenever violence against officers happen, we, we all must condemn it. But, you know, you read headlines of violence against citizens every day, and it's, it's always justified. It's by the book. It's according to procedure. It's totally fine. Um, the guy that uh, filmed the Alton Sterling shooting, he was arrested the very next day um, on clearly fabricated charges. Uh, it's just obvious that they decided to retaliate against this guy who posted the video you know, online because it causes problems for them. Hmm. Um, this video was really disturbing. Innocent mother beaten by cops in front of her children for reporting cops' rude behavior. This lady, Cindy Hahn, um, she was... Um, on her way home with uh, two, her two kids in the car. And there was some sort of police activity, and she stopped to ask them a question. And the officer's response was to tell her to mind her own effing business. Well, she was very shocked by that, and so she called the police department and made a formal complaint. And then minutes later, the cop who she reported pulled her over for you know what was ostensibly a seatbelt violation. Um, demanded that she gets out of the vehicle. She's thrown to the ground. And then she's like on the ground screaming for help. Like, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. You know, what's happening? Like literally her children are in the car watching this happen. And, um, and when backup arrives, she, she puts her hand out, you know, like as a gesture, you know, help me please. And the cop grabs her arm, bends it behind her back and starts punching her face. And it's just, it's unbelievable. And there's people standing around, you know, she didn't do anything wrong. You know, like, what are you doing? Like, and all they're yelling at her is to stop resisting. And she's like screaming, terrified the whole time. Um, and this is, you know, this is like a white lady. Like it's not just, it's not just black folk that are, that are suffering. Um, it's all of us. And I think we, we can look at the violence against African-Americans. It's kind of the canary in the coal mine. Like this is what's coming for everybody. And if you're not supporting exactly. the protesters at this point, you're just kind of like, you know, it's only well, a matter of time until it happens. Yeah, to you yeah. or somebody you love. I mean, <clears throat> and I thought it was interesting. You mentioned that FBI, um, the gold ticket alert, Joe. Um, we, we, know, we know how reliable the FBI is. Um, they are uh, going with uh, the Hillary Clinton situation and how she was, you know, quickly excused for any crimes. Um, I thought this headline was interesting. All the uh, agents that were involved in that gas- <clears throat> that investigation have been gagged with a very unusual NDA, which uh, I thought was a pretty interesting headline. Um, they all been they all were forced to sign some sort of non disclosure agreement saying that they can't talk about what had happened. Um, so I think our, our FBI is pretty well infected by the pathocracy. Well, yeah. Um, and, you know, I saw a bunch of headlines after Dallas, which um, 
basically kind of went into the statistics on violence against police and how, you know, 2015, 2016, you know, this has been the most, you know, peaceful era for officers in decades. You know, violence against officers has been record lows. It was something like a 40 or 50 year low. And now we're seeing these big, you know, media sensational shootings of officers. And it's almost like, you know, they're trying to change the narrative. They want to make it, you know, make it palpable and make it believable that, you know, violence against officers is something that really happens and we need to be really concerned Mm -hmm. about it. It's kind of putting the whole violence against citizens thing on the side. On the back burner, yeah. Yeah. Um, There's there's something, uh, Brent, I wanted to just, I thought it was worth mentioning. I saw that you uh, posted something on Facebook from someone, uh, a quote about, um, or just a comment basically on the, on, on the whole uh, police brutality thing, and it was it was speaking to this idea that you see a lot uh, from a lot of people uh, responding to you know videos or articles about police shootings or killings of people or brutality of some description. People on in comments would say, "If you just do what they tell you to do, you won't get hurt." And someone you had quoted someone who had said that. If you just do what they tell you to do, and you or just do what they tell you to do, and they won't get and you won't get hurt, is what we tell hostages. It's not what we tell uh, peaceful civilians or ordinary civilians in interactions with the police. And it was very true. Yeah, I thought that was a, a very it was an interesting tweet that somebody had posted. But it's it's a very apt point, you know. Like we these these police officers are supposed to be there to protect and serve us. They're not supposed to be, you know, criminals pointing guns at our heads, saying, you know, comply or we will kill you. Like mm. it's it's just not it's it's not what we you know have come to expect from officers. Well, I guess in this day and age, it's it's something we should expect more. That's well, um, not their role. It's not. I mean, they're. They're just, they've, they've become these sort of enforcers for the police state. And whether they realize it or not, they're being used to terrorize citizens. I mean, I, I made the, I was having a discussion the other day with somebody and talking about how, you know, we have death squads now in the United States for like the first time since maybe the slavery era or since lynching mobs in like the early 20th century. It's like we literally have these these state-sanctioned armed goons walking around killing people. And whether or not they kill you is based on their whim. It's it's how they, you know, how they feel, how upset they are. Um I read another article which was interesting. It talked about how policing isn't working for the police either. And basically, um it used this one guy as an example. This was the officer that was recorded uh basically assaulting a a young black girl outside of a pool um, probably a couple of months ago. And they went into his backstory. Like literally that same day he had dealt with somebody, talked somebody down from a suicide. Um, There was another violent interaction that he had participated in. And yet he was sent to this pool to deal with these kids. So he basically snapped and not to excuse his actions or anything, but the way that the system treats officers is the same way that the system treats all of us. You know, we're all just disposable, you know, 
eaters, you know, basically they can just do whatever they want with us. And, and if we die, it's not a big deal. And, you know, right. they will use the deaths and violence against officers to push their point, to push a narrative. Um, but it doesn't mean they actually care about them, which I think is a big point um, that the police right. officers and police officer supporters need, need to realize, you know, it's, it's not, it's not that they care about them. It's just that they're using it to allow more violence and, you know, whether it's violence against police officers or violence against protesters or violence against brown skinned people in the third world, you know, it's, it's all the same, you know, it's all violence against human beings. And that's what we, you know, collectively as a society, whether it's with black lives matter or, you know, chatting with your dad or however, we all need to kind of take a stand and say, no, this is not okay. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's mm-hmm. what says you, you're really human. Like <laughs> you got to, right. You gotta stand against the violence you know, and you, you gotta do stand it stand up for your stand up for your humanity yeah exactly i mean and th- there's there's numbers of ways it. that you can do it there's a lot of different ways you can do it and um i i just think that everybody needs to do whatever little thing they can you know if it's a facebook post great if it's going to a protest great but you know if you go to protest nowadays you got to be careful you really have to you know keep your awareness very finely tuned. You know, if you feel anything that seems wrong or you have a mm. bad vibe, get out, you know, like it's, it's, it's not, yeah. it's not worth but your even, life. You know? Even short of that, I mean, uh, even short of going out and protesting, I mean, the process is like standing up for your own humanity and your own, and your own conscience in your own mind, basically, you know, and to reject that kind of, the, the, the essentially the paramoralistic and psychopathic narrative that would, that effectively, if you absorb it, if you accept it into your own head, then you kill your own conscience and effectively kill your own humanity. You stop becoming a human being. And you don't have to you know, go out in the streets and protest all this kind of stuff. The first line is not allowing that kind of inf- infection of, of psychopathic ideologies that would uh, get you to support injustice against your fellow human beings by the, at the hand of psychopaths. It's rejecting that and not letting that take hold in your own mind because not only will you contribute to the suffering and deaths of other, of other innocent people, but you will become, you'll turn yourself into some kind of a animal basically in your own head. You'll just lose any conscience you had. You'll lose any sense of your own humanity. And, and what are you then? You're not even a human being anymore. Yeah. I think uh, anytime that you see violence being justified, you should immediately have a red flag go up in your mind and kind of just think, you know, is, you know, what's, what's the point here? Like what's going on? Like, (laughs) yeah. but uh, yeah, that's, that's my stories for this week. Oh yeah. Thanks Brent. Okay. It was mercifully short, but (laughs) still horrible. I just wanted, (laughs) I just wanted to throw one thing out there about this. um, You know, we had the, the Dallas shooting, where there were reports of multiple shooters, and then it got turned into lone golf. Now we've lone golf, lone wolf. Now we've got this one again, multiple golf. shooters, and we'll see if it turns into a lone wolf situation. But I'm waiting for, um, for the time when they stop using that narrative. Because if you think back, um, like during, uh, like decades ago, when there were massive news media stories about serial killers. Like where there was an individual going along, going around, killing people in specific ways, and there was tension, there was stress because people knew that person was out there. Now I think that that might be the next direction this goes in, where you have some snipers or shooters who kill cops, and then they get away. 
And then right. if you if you go with that story, then then you can just terrorize the population knowing that these people are on the loose. And it can turn it into a long, drawn-out media narrative. And so far, they haven't gone in that direction. You can see that something similar has been, has gone on in the so-called terrorist attacks in Europe, where they'll some people, some of these guys will die, some will get away, and then there's a huge manhunt for them. And it's like, oh well, they could mm. come back at any time, and they might get you. Mm. And um, I just see that happening in the states at some time in the near future. Yeah. That would also be a good excuse for them to throw a dragnet on, you know, any protest groups that they don't like or they want to shut down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Crazy. <clears throat> All right. Well, thanks again, Brent. Yeah. No problem, guys. Yeah. And we'll yeah, talk to you next week. Take care, Brent. No, right, bye-bye. All right. All right. See ya. So that's our show for the week, I guess. It is. Unless we have any final thoughts. Do you guys have any final thoughts? Mm, I'm not sure I can share them. <laughs> they're too explicit. I mean, All right, then. They're too... Disturbing? Yes. <laughs> I can't express them without using... Without cussing. What? Uh, let's save it then. No, that's what no, I think there you go it's a bit longer than that though <laughs> uh, anyway uh, yeah um, like I said at the beginning of the show things are super crazy there's all sorts of weird stuff in the air that seems to be acting on people so don't let it act on you i.e. When you feel yourself going a bit crazy, just kind of try and bring yourself back down to reality and, uh, you know, share it, share it with someone. You know, we have, uh, you know, to get on SAT and express yourself on the SAT, on SAT in the comment section, or you can join our forum and, uh, and talk about it there because we always talk about these things and share stuff and it helps a lot for people to feel like uh, they're not the only one feeling a bit crazy or feeling like everything has gone to hell, which it has. You'll just get confirmation that it's gone to hell, but at least, uh, you feel like you're not the only one who sees it and uh, and is having to deal with it. And, you know, uh, a burden shared is a burden halved, as they say. So it's it's really important to kind of uh, talk to other like-minded people about this kind of thing. Other, other like-minded people being other people who actually still have a functioning brain and can uh, see what's going on and call it for what it is, basically. So uh, somebody in the, on the chat room wants me to sing a song. Uh, that's Red Fox. Uh, I don't know. You'd have to send in a request, Red Fox, um, before I, I can't just launch into something. <laughs> you might you mightn't like it. Um, what about a, a hymn? Uh, I don't know. Come by, yeah. Maybe we can rehearse and do, do a song next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I, I would just like to suggest something we've made mention of on the show previously, and that is the practice of Eru Olas, uh, which is a breathing and meditation program that um, really helps you to relax quite deeply and uh, stimulate your vagus nerve. It does all kinds of wonderful things for you physiologically, emotionally, psychologically. Mm-hmm. It, um, it'll, it'll help you to think more clearly. Uh, you can go to uh, Eru Olas. Uh, dot org for an explanation of the uh, practice 
um, which many of us do to great effect. That's spelled E-I-R-I-U hyphen E-O-L-A-S dot org. You can get a complete explanation of the program on that website, and it'll uh, explain exactly how it's going to benefit you. Um, and just a good, a good kind of thing you can do to take care of yourself and to help yourself to uh, chill, chill, process uh, difficult emotions. Um, if you're stressed out, it helps you to relax deeply. So, mm-hmm. just a reminder. Yeah, some, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a good idea. It's a very useful technique. Um, someone in the chat room just suggested we could, uh, or this live radio show could be a a good uh, vehicle for some kind of uh, guided meditation or something along those lines, you know, something where, um, you know, at the end of a show maybe or something, we could, you know. We could just set up a a whole new show on a different day to do that. Have a a weekly meditation time. We'll have to get Laura in on that one, though. (laughs) We'll Uh, we'll talk it over. Yeah, have to recruit her. Yeah, it's a good idea. Uh, We'll think about it. Uh, but for now, I'll have to stick with Kumbaya. All right, everybody. Kumbaya, my lord. Kumbaya. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. That's all, that's all we're that's doing. Virtual, that's virtual arch. <laughs> that's it. Okay. Well, I think we'll end it there then. So thanks, yes. everyone, for tuning in, and we'll be back next week. I think we're going to be doing an interview next week. Um, so tune in for that. We'll be talking about unless imperialism and stuff like that. Unless something major happens. Yeah, exactly. We, so we may we. Well, it, it's contingent on know. future events. So we'll see. Right. All right. So everyone, take care. Thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah. Thanks for listening, and hope you enjoy the show. And have a good week. Be safe. Bye, everyone. See you next week.